60 men were killed in the worst special operations disaster in modern Residents history. Residents of Coronado, California, were shocked by the brutal murder of Lauren Reese and her three-year-old daughter. Seal Lieutenant Commander James Reese survived the ambush, but is under investigation. Welcome to the Terminal List Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by KC Cattle Company. I'm Jack Carr, creator of The Terminal List, and this is a very special bonus episode of The Terminal List Podcast because the guest is none other than Chris Pratt, the man who brought James Reese to life in the Prime video series. Do we talk about a season two in this episode? You'll have to listen or watch to find out. And now, without further ado, Chris Pratt. Great to, yeah. Good to see you. Yeah. Yeah. I got the, the podcast studio going here, which is going to be the office. I was actually this morning, I was out in a cabin writing away on book six and it's not that far away. And I was kind of like, man, I should be home with a family a little more. So I'm going to come, I'm going to go there during the day to work, but then at night, I'm just going to come here and make this my writing cabin and uh, just pretend that it's farther away. I love it. So that podcast room you're sitting in is in your house. It's uh, it's on the property, but it's, uh, it's property. separate, which helps a little nice, bit, yeah. a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but when everybody oh, goes to bed, I'll uh, I'll come out here and and uh, jump on this and just pretend that I'm a million miles away while the kids are asleep. So that's my that's my plan going forward. Trying to make some Perfect. adjustments here as I move into 2023. But yeah, uh, great. Oh man, it looks great, man. Yeah. Look at that. I love that. Not bad. Love that little side-by-side double-barrel shotgun up yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. It's an old Parker Damascus barrel. So, oh. uh, yeah, I found that in New Hampshire not too long ago. This A guy made me this. He made me uh, right here. So a guy uh, reached out and said he wanted to make me this arrow. His grandfather taught him how to make bows. And then Whoa. he was a big fan of the novels. So he went and did some research on uh, what tribes in Siberia and Kamchatka Peninsula, Russia, from Savage Sun would have used. And then he made me this arrow here. So it's got, I think this is deer bone right here. He's got some tar that's holding it in here. Uh, he did a bunch of research and said he got it as close as he as he could. Um, oh, that's incredible. Yeah, amazing, amazing. Tracker Joe 08 uh, reached out, sent this to me. And um, yeah, amazing. amazing. That's, a, so, that's awesome. Well, yeah, that's cool. Very cool. Very cool. But nice. uh, yeah, man, but thanks for doing this. This is awesome. You have a rare day off. You have a rare day off. And yeah. I know you can't like talk about how busy you are because people, then people will be like, oh, Hollywood, really busy, you know, like, oh, yeah. it must be really <laughs> difficult. But man, you guys, you are busy. And that's like one of the main things from being on set and just being, having that being my first experience in Hollywood, just kind of looking around and seeing how hard everybody's working at every level. Like that's, yeah. that was one of my huge takeaways. And Oh, is that uh, right? It's, yeah. Oh, it's, man. yeah. We, especially when you're on a set like that, it's pretty incredible. The you know, film and television industry. I, I was just saying this the other day uh, in, the, in an interview, you know, Hollywood gets is an easy target. You know, people mm -hmm. in Hollywood get made fun of. And by, by the way, we totally deserve it uh, <laughs> most of the time. And uh, but all that being said, we really do move mountains. We do some pretty incredible stuff. And our crews are, you know, a couple hundred strong, usually on a TV show like that. And if not, upwards of a thousand, if you get one of the, you know, a thousand different souls in various aspects yeah. working on these projects. And yeah, it takes, it takes, 
years to put these things together. And so it's a mountain of work and a ton of administration. And it's not all that dissimilar from my understanding of sort of like the chain of command of uh, almost like the military. There are various departments and there are people at the top and um, you know, that everything works downhill through this chain of command and, and we get a lot of stuff done. So yeah, when you're on set, it's, you're really in kind of in the eye of the storm. Yeah. It's crazy. This project that we did together was really eye-opening for me because for 20 years I've been acting and um, this was really a new step forward for me to produce something and to be part of each of the steps that actually bring something to screen. As an actor, there's like a middle portion that I'm involved in. You know, my first day on set, my last day on set and everything in between I'm very familiar with. But as a producer, there's a mountain of work to even get to that first day on set. And then there's a mountain of work after that last day on set. And uh, I got to dip my toes in on this one. Well, I more than dip my toes <laughs> yeah. in. I jumped headfirst into the deep end on this one and, and gained a whole new appreciation for the amount of work that goes into creating a television show. Yeah. Were you surprised having been having been in the industry for so long? Um, or were you kind of like, okay, I can see what these other people are doing before and after. Um, was it a surprise to you how much extra work there was? I mean, you were involved in everything from the music. I remember you calling me about, hey, what do you think of this uh, this sound? And you know, you're, you're doing all, so much before, during, and after. And your during part is different too, because you're not just showing yeah. up to act, you're showing up to do that, obviously, but then you're involved right. in all the other aspects of production as well right. as being in front of the camera. Yes, that's right. I mean, I, it was one of those things where I didn't know what I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And so to, to say that, I, I don't know that I would say that I was surprised as much as I was just enlightened in a way, you know, I was like, uh, uh, I was just ignorant before and, and, and doing in, 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 in my defense, you know, not to call myself ignorant, I, but I, I, didn't, I didn't have to know how to all yeah. that stuff. Work. I just needed to focus on my yeah. part. And, you know, it, it's a big, it's a big process with, with many moving parts. It's a little bit like making a car, you know, there might be a guy who specializes in building tires. Right. And then there's a guy who specializes on the drive shaft and there's some, someone who specializes on interior, but it's like very few, there's probably not one, a single person who knows how to make an entire car. Yeah. They just have their area that they focus on and become an expert at. And over 20 years, I've kind of become an expert in the field of acting. That's, you know, a a poll quote that'll make me look like a douche, but um, (laughs) don't worry, we can edit it. (laughs) But, um, but yeah, you know, so I guess I I was, I, I guess maybe you can call it surprised, but definitely uh, edifying to see, wow, this is what, this is what goes into it. And, and you get, you get out what you put in. And so having it, it's just been so gratifying. It's been such an awesome experience for me to be able to get so much out of this show because I, we've all put so much into it. Man, it's so cool. And I would have thought you had done it because we talked about it since that it was your first time doing that production side of it. But I, I would have thought you've done it a thousand times before with how involved you were before, during and after and all aspects of this. I was like, because I, I, I didn't know beforehand that it was your first time being an executive producer on something and being involved in all these other aspects. And I would have thought you'd done it a thousand times until I think Dave DeGilio, uh-huh. the showrunner, said that it was your first time doing that. And I was like, what? I mean, yeah, so degree, it, was my fir- it was my first time I'd, I'd EP'd on a couple of things, a couple of documentaries that I'd been a part of earlier, but nothing ever in the narrative space or for television or with this big of a budget. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it was, it was my, it was my first foray into this level, but my, not my last. I really liked it. Yeah. I really, really liked it. And, um, 
it was, it was fun. It was cool. Oh, it was, it was awesome. Cool. We had such a great team too. I mean, it was so right. awesome. Um, putting the, you and Antoine teaming up and then finding David DeGilio. I mean, we couldn't have found a better showrunner. I mean, he was incredible. Right, right. And then to have you yeah. guys trust me, trust Jared, trust Max, uh, yeah. trust Ray and having such a great relationship. I mean, it was, a it was incredible. Um, and everybody that I talked to makes a point to, uh, like Antoine, uh, and, and then, uh, Peter Berg was over here the other day and he was checking out the studio here and everything. And he made a point to say the same thing, which was, uh, yeah, it doesn't usually happen like this in Hollywood, right. just so you know, <laughs> it's not usual that you just write a book and then all of a sudden the exact person you want to star, the exact person you want to direct all come together and make it happen. And you get to be involved in all this stuff. And, uh, I'm like, Oh, it seems like, uh, why not? Like, <laughs> but, I mean, it's so, yeah. so cool. <laughs> I, I know I've had people tell me that same thing where like, this doesn't, it doesn't always happen like this. So, you know, I think it's like an attempt to make someone realize you know, so give a person some perspective yeah, or something, right. but I mean, that's exactly how it happened. And <laughs> I think crazy. you shouldn't expect anything less. Like, you know, <laughs> this should always happen like that. For you. <laughs> Man, it was just so crazy. I highly favored my friend. Oh, that's thank good. you. So uh, incredible, incredible. But uh, Jared also and Dave say hello. We, uh, after we talked oh, yesterday, uh, I talked to those yeah. guys and they want to make sure I said uh, hello to you today. Nice. So, I mean, what a crazy, crazy team, but um, your path to this point right here, uh, mm. at what point in high school or whenever it was, you started thinking about one day being on the screen? Oh man. Um, well, I, I knew I wanted to be an actor when I was very, very young mm. because I saw my brother do it. I saw my brother do a play. He was Boo Bear in the Christmas music. Hey, special. that's big time right out of the gate. Uh, huh? In our family, he was the star of the Christmas thing up in our high school or our, our elementary school. We were going to in Alaska in Anchorage. Wow. And I remember he had the solo and he like had this lisp and he was singing the song. Everything was running smoothly. <laughs> Everything was going fine. He's dressed wow. up as a bear. My dad did his makeup. It turns out my dad was an incredible makeup artist. <laughs> Who knew? Um, and uh, and I just saw my mom crying and I oh. saw my brother up there. And my whole life, I always just wanted to do whatever my brother, older brother did because I just looked up yeah. to him so much. And uh, so I was like, acting is cool. And, and at that point, you know, any... You know, and I grew up in small towns that didn't really celebrate the arts like that, you know, kind of uh, throwback towns with tough blue collar, you know, mill workers and and loggers and, you know, the very tough kind of culture. Yeah. And and it, there was no stigma in my mind around acting. I was like, that's something that's really cool. That's something I want to do. And so the minute anytime there was ever a play, I always auditioned and got a part of some kind and in school. And then in, in high school, my brother did all of our assemblies and was a total showman and did like dances and songs and wrote sketches. And I followed in his footsteps, footsteps and did the same thing. And so my junior and senior year, I put on these great big productions and basically produced big shows for the whole school that we would do it at like our pep assembly. So they'd be like 15 or 20 minutes long. And we do sketches and kind of just rip stuff off from SNL or you know, we did something based on Greece and we did something based on Michael Jackson's thriller. And, you know, I, uh, just loved it. I loved the spotlight. I loved the attention. I, I felt like I excelled in that world and it did not seem realistic to me that I would like say, Oh, one day I'm going to go be an actor, but I loved the thought of it. Uh. 
the way someone may love the thought of being an astronaut, yeah. you know, as a kid and say like, but I'm, you know, not, that's not going to obviously not going to really happen, but gosh, it'd be cool to go to space. <laughs> so I, I loved it. I, lo- I knew I would, if I give, if given the opportunity, I would be able to excel in that arena, but I had no uh, avenue for actually getting there. I didn't know anyone in Hollywood. I didn't have a pot to piss in in terms of money. I couldn't like afford to just go to Hollywood or, you know, so I pursued acting after high school. Um, I did a, started doing plays in the community and I got a job at a little dinner theater and did one act melodramas is like the, the bad guy in these, you know, plays that we would do while people were eating and they wouldn't even pay attention to the play that was happening on the stage. And we mm. did it for free basically. And, and I did a theater class in community college and just kept doing, I started doing stand-up comedy. I just really loved the spotlight and just, you know, through a series of very fortunate coincidences or call it fate or whatever, I met a director who was, who uh, gave me an audition. And that was, you know, 20 years ago. That's 20 years and, ago. And, uh, in, in Hawaii? Are you in Hawaii? Is, is this the point yeah, where you're in Hawaii? I, was in Hawaii. Hawaii I, had moved, I had moved to Hawaii after like sort of a failed stint, a, a failed stint as a door-to-door salesman. And what were you selling? I was selling these coupons for businesses in the service industry. So for oil changes or for trips to a salon, that kind of a thing, like promotional little packages. Oh, and I did very well as a door-to-door salesman. I loved it. I could kind of, it was, it was the same thing that's really serviced me well as an actor, just yeah. being able to kick in a door and walk in there and sell myself and get people excited. And, you know, attitude is contagious. And, you know, we had all these little, these little sayings, we would say like PMA equals OPM, which was positive (laughs) mental attitude equals other people's money. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no way. That's I learned. I learned more about how to operate in Hollywood as a door-to-door salesman than anyone ever will in a theater class or a college prep class for school or film school. I mean, the business side of it, just the straight salesmanship and the grind and the hustle and the facing rejection and waking up and knocking on doors and hearing people say no and saying, fuck it, I'm moving forward anyways. And the thick skin required all that stuff really, really suits acting well. Interesting. Uh, And probably just being a public figure in general, um, taking, taking barbs. Well, Man, that's crazy. So eventually, so after this stint as a door-to-door salesman, you find yourself in, in Hawaii and is the, is the Bubba Gump shrimp story, is that, that's out there? Is that the, is that how that's it real. happened? And Ray Don Chong real. is there and she sees yeah, you? Yeah, Ray Don Chong, she sees me. Wow. I picked up a shift that day. I worked enough hours to keep like, I think you had to work 20 hours a week to keep insurance or something like that. So I'd work about 20 hours a week and I had very little overhead because we just were like camping on the beach living in a van and a tent with my buddy Zeb, who he and I were co-captains of the wrestling team in high school. And a whole bunch of us moved out there together in high school. And uh, we're just living the good life and uh, as youngsters. And um, yeah, she, I, I picked up a shift, which I never did. I was always giving my shifts away. I picked one up for my buddy. And then I saw this woman that I recognized from the movies. Uh, and I just was like, and I think part of me in that moment was like, she's from Hollywood. Yeah door-to-door sales, Boom. you know, go kick that door down. No way. Really? <laughs> and Part of me felt that. Yeah. I, I was like, I was going to go explore it. And I was just immediately like, you're a movie star. No she was way. like, my name's Ray. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I, and I was like, hi, what are you doing here? She was like, you're cute. Do you act? 
I was like, fuck yeah, I act. Yep. <laughs> yes. Sure do. Put me in a movie. And I'm your did. man. What do you need? And she was like, do you really? I said, yeah, yeah, I've got it. I've got my actor. And she said, well, give me your phone number. I've got an audition for you. And at the time I didn't have a phone. I didn't even have a house, you know, I was like, so I gave her my buddy's phone number. This guy named Michael Jackson. <laughs> not the same one, you're not the star. Uh, but a guy named Michael Jackson, who was one of our managers. And uh, a couple days later, he was like, hey man, some like Chinese chick called you for you, something Chong. I was like, oh, right, dude, oh, right. Um, what'd she say? And he's like, just call her back. So I call her and she was like, okay, so I didn't think you were going to call me back, but we need to audition you. Uh, I'm leaving tomorrow. I was like, great. What, what do I do? And so I borrowed my buddy's van. I drove to the other side of the Island. I picked up the script. I went home, uh, read the whole thing like three times script. I was like, Whoa, this is crazy. The character's name is Nick. If I played a character, my name would be Nick. He's wearing a flannel shirt. Hmm, I bet you have a flannel shirt. This is all <laughs> so exciting. I remember everything about it. And then I went and auditioned and, and halfway through, she was like, you're good. We're going to use you. I was like, and I said, does it, does it shoot? Does it shoot here on the Island? You know, uh, like I need to find out sort of like get on getting time off work and stuff. I'd love, I'd love to, it sounds great. She was like, it shoots in LA. And I'm immediately crestfallen thinking, well, I've got about 60 bucks. To my <laughs> <life>. <laughs> I was like, I can't, I can't afford to go to LA. And she said, sweetie, we'll fly you there. <laughs> and, uh, I really felt, in that moment, the tectonic plates of my life beneath me shifting. And I, I actually knew right then I was like, Oh my God, my dreams are going to come true. Like, this is it. I'm going to go and be in this movie and I'm going to, I'm going to go and I'm going to go, I'm going to be a movie star. I'm going to go be a movie star now. So awesome. This has happened. I remember floating out and going down to the beach after the audition and just like looking at her as we're bobbing in the, in the waves. And I was like, this is, I'm going to remember this moment. This is my life just changed forever. Wow. That's amazing. Was yeah. she in your section or did you go over to her at the restaurant? I went to over to someone else's section. Wow. That is so awesome. And now, of course, Radon Chong starred with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Commando, of course. Yeah, how, how, and then now, <laughs> father-in-law. Oh, I mean, that's, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, and she was awesome, by the way. I love that film. Of course. That's yeah, one of she's her. great. And, and Quest for Fire. She's a really great actress. And, uh, and had a really uh, amazing career and in a, in a strange way was like sort of put in my life as, as an op, as a way to sort of bring me here. I mean, I do believe in fate and I do believe in, um, I don't think things just, it's, I don't think we just live in a world of chaos where things just randomly happen. Yeah. I, I believe in fate. I was meant to be. Yeah. And um, yeah, I'm forever going to be grateful for her, for, for introducing me and bringing me down here. I mean, I, I I, and you know, I got paid $700 to do the movie. And so it wasn't like they rolled out the golden carpet and I, it was hey. no, it was easy, but the door was cracked open. That's you know, right. now I had tape. Now I met people. I could start networking. I could meet the managers that were representing friends of mine that I'd met on the movie. I could meet agents. I had, you know, yeah. I had a scene or two cut together from the movie that I could go and start selling myself. I had to get a job in Beverly Hills and start working as a waiter again. I, I spent the $700 on a car. I started couch surfing. <laughs> nice. I st our, our script supervisor's name, Lauren and her, her now husband, Doug, who's a, 
a lit agent at ICM. Wait, is he, hey. he's not your, not my uh, agent. No, but I'll, uh, Doug McLaren, oh, wow. a, a, the agent at ICM. And I that would have been crazy that. if he was though. I know, it, I know, <laughs> uh, but it, it, it's, it, um, I went and stayed at their house for a few weeks and, um, then I had to go back home cause I was out of money and I needed to go raise more money. So I had a couple of friends back home that would employ me to go do some yard work and stuff. So I went back home and worked for a few weeks straight, trying to raise a couple hundred dollars to come back to LA and give it, a, give it a real go. And when I came back, I had, I hadn't called Lauren and Doug. I just showed up <laughs> and I was like, I'm back. And they were, what? They're like, Oh, the room is, the room is, um, is taken. My brother's in town. He, and I was like, that's fine. I'll just sleep out by your pool. <laughs> so I just slept out on their lawn chairs for, for like a couple weeks. No way. And then me and her brother, Chris ended up uh, getting an apartment together. <laughs> no way. That is yeah. crazy. Now, how soon after that does Everwood happen? Is that the next kind of step? Everwood thing, and no, after that, I, I, it was, it was incremental steps. I mean, I didn't get my SAG card by doing the Radon film. So huh. That was, so I had to get a SAG card and I got that by doing a guest star on a, a USA television show called The Huntress. I had two lines. I auditioned. They didn't know I didn't have my SAG card the day before. They got angry with me. They're like, you don't have your SAG card? I was like, hmm, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> and so they taft heartlyed me into the union. So boom, I was in the union. And then you have to pay union dues. It's like three grand. I was like, oh my God, I'm three grand. That's like, like take me two years to save up three grand. You know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, so I then started doing, got a commercial agent, started trying to audition for commercials. And I got a couple commercials. I was able to pay for my SAG dues. And then I auditioned for a movie that was like the big first big job I got that actually was the last time I was ever a waiter. Like I left my waiting job to do this movie and it was called the extreme team. And that shot in New Zealand and oh. it was happening right during uh 9-11. Oh, wow. So September 1st or September 11th, 2001, I was in New Zealand Wow! and, and, you know, everything that happened on 9-11 happened. And, and, uh, where are you awake at the time? Cause it's uh, the time difference. I woke is... up, I woke up to it. Okay. I woke up to it and they were like, everyone was playing. They, they were talking They're like the world trade center got hit the world trade center. Me, uh, 20 years old, maybe 21 years old from Lake Stevens, Washington. No idea what the World Trade Center is. I'm just thinking it's like a big swap meet in Chicago or something. You know, I was like, the guy is a trade center. It's like a, what is it? What is it? And then I saw the videos like, oh my God, it's like giants. And I just didn't know, you know. And then so we watched what was happening. And it was very strange actually to be in a foreign country for that because immediately these people started saying like, well, you know, like I remember distinctly a few people that were not American saying like, well, this is what you get. This is what America gets, you know, for their involvement in various things like this sort of, and I was like, just in shock. And I remember kind of stepping away and crying, thinking about like the, everyone who died. And I was just like, I can't believe this happened. And then we went to work, we went to work that day. Okay. And it just like, this like kept going. And I was, I, you know, and then I, I went and visited after we wrapped, I went and visited my buddy in Australia. And that's when, you know, George Bush, George W was, uh, gave his sort of state of the union about the plan moving forward and mm -hmm. the world ch changed. You know, I just remember the world changing right there. It's wild. It's really wild to think. Yeah. And, um, it was not my, 
I, I sometimes wonder like what my life would have been like had I not been called to sort of my path yeah. previous to 9-11. Right. Do you know, like yeah. if I was still living on the beach, smoking a bunch of weed and kind of not fulfilling, you know, like slowly the, yeah. the small island fever and like the wondering what I'm doing with my life would have crept in. And if 9-11 had happened and I was still out there, yeah. I mean, I wonder if I would have, if I would have been called in a different direction. Yeah. Do you, you have family members that were in, in the military? Like, yeah, my brother uh, was in the army for uh, about ten years, and then uh, went and then went into law enforcement. And then my cousin, who Curtis, who was like a brother to me growing up, he lived in the same town as us, as us, and but was about ten years older or so, or twelve years older. Yeah. He was in the navy, yeah. and um, you know, my uncles were in fought in Vietnam, and um, so I had a lot of. Like, and I have cousins, my cousin who was in the Navy, both his sons went in the Coast Guard. It was kind of like the, it was kind of the path for most of the people around us. In fact, yeah. I, the only reason I didn't do it because I had done everything my brother did. I just followed in his footsteps. I literally wore the clothes that he wore the day before. Yeah. I would put them on. I completely followed my brother. Yeah. And I remember him after getting out of basic telling me not to join the army. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't do He's it. Like, Don't do it, dude. Yeah. <laughs> That's wise advice. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. He goes, yeah, man. I think he recognized like a certain sensitivity about me or something special in me that he thought would have maybe mm -hmm. been killed. Had I, you know, he always really took care of me. I was like more really sensitive kid. And he always was my, my protector. Yeah. And I was, maybe he thought that something that it, it wouldn't have been a good fit for me. Maybe he was right. Yeah. I wonder how many people that were, hadn't found that had this calling, but hadn't quite gotten to that stage where they were directly on the path and they were still going door to door thinking about what their true calling was, or they're still working as a waiter somewhere, but still thinking about that, that path and that calling. And then all of a sudden 9-11 happens and how many yeah. people shifted off that path that they mm -hmm. were on, but they were just starting out um, yeah. and hadn't really developed to a stage yet where they could jump into whatever that calling was and be in right. the beginning stages of it. And they 9-11 happens and all of a sudden total shift and they join the yeah. military, join the army, join the Marines, whatever, and off they yeah. go. And then life takes a different turn. Yeah, would have been a different turn. I mean, for me, especially, I think like a lot of people went down that path and, yeah. and you know, you know, like nine eleven happened next day, they're in a recruiter's office. Right. And I think the reason I, you know, and I'm not, I don't say this to be like, to steal valor, to be like, Oh, well, you know, I would have been a fucking tough guy or whatever, you know, who knows? I probably would have been filling snack machines on a, <laughs> which is very important by the way, to the snack which, machine you know, fine. but <laughs> I think the thing about it that I feel like would have called me was I grew up an athlete. I was a wrestler. Mm -hmm. I was on the wrestling team and I was a football player and I was always surrounded by my teammates yeah. and pushed and driven by coaches and forged in training. Yeah. And so I remember after getting out of high school, slowly and incrementally, I got in worse shape and I was kind of longing for that. I was like, I feel like uh, I kind of was turning into a bit of a turd, you know, I was drinking <laughs> too much, was smoking too much. And, you know, and I just feel like if that had happened, part of me would have longed to, find leadership and brotherhood yeah. again that I had sort of felt when I was an athlete in school. Right. I, I just wonder if that would have been my path. Yeah. Did you, did you do track and field too? Did you do you shot put? Is that? Yeah, I was a, yeah, I was a shot put and, and uh, javelin discus. Nice. Javelin. That's pretty serious. 
Yeah. That's, that's awesome. fun. That's, that's yeah. great. That's a great, uh, that's a great sport. I was a, you know, all sport athletes yeah. through school. I did every season after school. And, um, I really thought that I would pursue football in college, but I was a little slow. And so I joined the track team instead oh. of the baseball team, thinking that track would get me to learn how to become a faster runner. Yeah. And, but then I, but throwing shot was so much easier that I just kind of didn't, <laughs> I didn't have to run. I run like an 800 <laughs> to get warmed up and then just go. <laughs> oh man. It's so crazy. Um, and so, so you, so you're doing these, these films, you're in, I wasn't too far away from you. I was in Guam on 9-11, uh, okay. second week into my, uh, second deployment, 9-11 happens. Wow. And then off we go to the, the Middle East, but we all, it was about midnight, if I recall correctly. And everybody starts banging on doors up and down the hallway. Cause we don't have TVs in our rooms. And then we went down to the barracks basement and watched it on, watched it on TV, watched the twin towers fall. And then, uh, then off we went, but, uh, wow. but I wasn't too far from you, but you come back from that and you're still doing, still doing, and then Everwood, then. Yeah. The and, then, and then I come back from that and I'm like made decent money on the extreme team movie nice. enough to like not have to be a waiter again. And I came into LA and I started kind of like hanging out and partying a lot and just kind of enjoying youth and, and auditioning for everything. And, um, and I auditioned for Everwood, but I had basically, I basically run through, blew through all of the money. <laughs> and like, uh, I remember my car was being towed <laughs> that day. My car got towed that day and I had to pay them like $1,500 to keep my car. That was going to be the the trade-off. Like I owed so much in tickets and the boot and all that stuff. <laughs> and the, that the value of my car plus $1,500 was going to pay off. Oh. It was an 86 Suzuki Samurai. Nice. And uh, the top, <laughs> with, the top, with a soft top, oh great car. And um, so I was like broke. That pretty much wiped me out. And I was like, oh no. And so I walked to my friend Jen's house. She lives like down in Inglewood. And I walked there and she, this is back when I used to smoke a lot of weed <laughs> and she rolled me this big blunt and we smoked. And I was like, I think, I think, I, I think I'm tapped out. Like, uh, <laughs> I think I gotta, like, I'm done. I don't, I don't have a car. I don't have any money. Like I shit. I, I <laughs> fucking blew it. <laughs> terrible, terrible. And, and my manager at the time, Bonnie Owens, who's since passed away. May she rest in peace, Bonnie. My first manager called me and said, Chris Pratt, she's calling Chris Pratt, Chris Pratt, you, we have an emergency audition. You need to go in. And I was like, Oh, um, I don't. Oh. And I'm like, very stoned. I was like, Oh, uh Oh, um, I don't think that's a, I don't think that might, uh, that's, I don't, I don't have a car, Bonnie. I forgot to tell you my car got towed. She was like, Oh, okay. Well, where are you? I'll come pick you up. I was like, Oh gosh. All right. So I gave her Jen's address. She came to pick me up. Jen was like, you need to shave. You need to clean yourself up, take a shower, <laughs> drink a Coca-Cola, you know? Uh -huh. So I'm getting these lines and I'm looking, there's like eight or nine pages of dialogue. And I was like, you know, beavis uh -huh. and butthead in my brain. And like my last two brain cells running together, trying to put this work together. And, um, I was like, I don't have the, I said to Bonnie, I was like, I don't, I can't memorize this. I can't. And she goes, honey, just go in there and be you, just be you, just be yourself. 
And if they like you, they'll find room for you. It's Joseph Middleton. He's the casting director who in the, at the CW at the time I was auditioned for everything on the CW mm -hmm. one tree Hill and mm -hmm. uh, Dawson's Creek and all mm -hmm. these shows that were like right in that uh, mm -hmm. uh, zone for me. And I'd gotten very close and tested for characters and gotten very close, but hadn't gotten any jobs. And she said, just go be yourself. Just be yourself. All you need to do is walk in there and just be you. And I read the the audition and, and I was like, I was just stoned enough to have the hubris to try this thing that I'd always tried, which was to go in there and pretend I am the guy mm -hmm. rather than go in there and say, hey, my name is Chris and then start acting. Mm -hmm. And I said, so the character was called Bright Abbott and he was a total bully. And he like picks on this kid because he has purple hair and he's like, He's basically the, the, it was the part that I auditioned for all the time, which was the mm -hmm. guy who's like, Hey bro, back off. I'll kick your ass. Right. And then in the end, that character like, gets kicked in the balls right. and he's like, you know, spiky hair and he drives an escalate because he's a total douche. That was the character I was always auditioning uh -huh. for. Like Biff. It's like get the physical yeah. profile of the guy that you just wanted to punch in the face right. at the time. And, and that was that guy. And so and he was kind of vapid and, you know, a little dumb and cocky. And so I was like, I'm going to go in there and I'm just going to be him. I'm going to pretend like that's exactly who I am as a person. So I walk in and it was Greg Berlanti and Mickey Liddell, Everwood. And they said, hey, Chris, thank you so much for coming in last minute. Do you have any questions? I was like, well, I kind of breezed through it. But here's the, the scoop seems to be that I'm the star. <laughs> um, which I wouldn't have been. It was like this other uh -huh. kid, the, the kid with the purple hair was, it was clearly his, it was absolutely clearly his story and his dad. It was Gregory Smith and treatment. I was like a guy who was maybe in a few scenes just to be there to pick on him. Mm -hmm. I go, so I'm the star and this little purple haired freak moves into town and he's trying to get with my sister. So this is me just basically putting him in his place. Mm -hmm. And they were like, yes, that's right. And I did exactly the thing. I just improv the whole thing. Nice. I was like, all right, see you later. And I just walk out and then I immediately put my ear to the door. Cause I used <laughs> to always do that when I walk out of auditions, if no one was looking Really. And I, and I hear them go, that's the guy. That's the guy. Nice. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm the guy. And the next day I had a, a studio screen test. And within three weeks I was packing up my automobile and moving to Utah to go yeah. shoot a show. That, the Salt Lake. No, no, no. First we went to, First, we went to Canada. Oh, wow. Shot the show. And then it got picked up. And then we moved uh, to Utah. And that's it. when I lived in Utah. Doing the Salt Lake thing. And then comes the OC. And, OC, yeah. uh, and, then, and then it goes into Parks and Rec. And then I went OC. I, I did Everwood. And then I did the OC. And then, oh, um, and then, um, and then I, after the OC. And this is a period where you have some amazing headshots uh, for anyone that follows you on Instagram. <laughs> Pratt, Pratt, Pratt on Instagram. Uh, oh, yeah. There was one you did the other day that was uh, was like that uh, the throwback. People were doing it, I guess, a song, putting the song to it. Yeah. And you put like 10 of these headshots in there. Like there's some gems in there from, Dude, the, from this time period, some, from like 2000 to 2000, oh, I don't know, 8-ish time. Yeah. There's some solid yeah. headshots. They're curly, like head yeah, of curly it's all, it's fantastic. And, like, Oh, the Izod hey, shirt. See, I saw one with see. a red Izod shirt. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's so great. You can see it's why awesome. I was cast as the guy you, that you were the punch in the face. <laughs> it was great. Yeah. yeah. There were some gems. Teenage dirtbag. Oh, I was it. a teenage dirtbag. <laughs> um, yeah. Around that time I did the, so we did four seasons of Everwood. Then it got canceled. And 
it was funny because the OC came had been cast and and put into production a year after Everwood, mm-hmm. and so Everwood was doing pretty well. But then the OC came in and was doing very well. So, and yeah. we, there was kind of similar shows, young teeny kind of shows, and they were we were always in their shadow. And and then uh, and then our show got canceled, but the OC went on, and there was an opportunity for me to be on the OC. So I was yeah. like, great, got to keep working. So I went and did one season of that, which was really fun. And then after that, um, oh, I think I did a couple of, I think I did a, a couple of movies. I think I did this movie, Take Me Home Tonight. Mm. And again, the kind of douche character. <laughs> and uh, that's uh, with Topher Grace. And, and then after that, I got Parks and Rec. Nice. And I remember I was testing for another TV show called Chuck at the time remember Chuck and Chuck yeah. was, do you remember that show? Chuck? I do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tested for that show. Zach Levi ended up doing it. I think. Forget, right. But I remember the show. I remember, I remember the commercial. The the and, and, uh, and I had tested for that, but he got the role. And after that, there was a couple of movies I was auditioning for, but then I went and auditioned for parks and rec. And that was the, that was a wild, crazy thing. I ended up going for seven seasons and, um, it started off as a guest star, you yeah. know, that I was just, again, the douche. Yeah. The problem with every time I played the douche, it was like, I wasn't, I didn't, that wasn't really actually in my wheelhouse. Like I didn't, yeah. I didn't know how to believably do it, you know? Cause I felt like I was always just playing characters that were a little closer to myself and, you know, I don't think I'm a douche. So like, I think that like there's a certain douchiness that some people have that you kind of yeah. can't wipe off. <laughs> And I never was able to put it on in a believable way. Yeah. So every, even in Everwood, when I was cast as a douche, they ended up taking the character and, and just shifting it more towards my own natural personality and making me a, a character that's closer to who I really am yeah. with like heightened sense. And it's the same thing with Parks and Rec. Like I was playing this douche character, but they realized me trying to be funny and be Andy Dwyer was more effective in terms of evoking a, yeah. comedic you know a response from the audience than me playing a douche and so slowly the writing shifted and i became andy dwyer and at the same time you're going out still for looking at other roles like Moneyball. is that is that during yeah. that time frame as well and that's exactly and, uh, right well we did seven seasons in the last three seasons or four seasons i was always doing stuff on the break so we'd have you know in television network television now it once was 22 episodes you're working probably seven months out of the year and then you have a four, or eight months out of the year, then you have a yeah. four month break, like a summer vacation. And then you're, you're trying to do jobs in that summer break. And so during that summer break, I did some jobs. I ended up every break I'd do, like I did a, a movie called Bride Wars with Kate Hudson and Anne Hathaway, which to this day is Catherine's favorite movie that I've done. She wow. hasn't seen any of my stuff. But she hasn't seen anything else. Oh, it's a masterpiece, cinematic masterpiece. Okay, Don't let her watch the terminal list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. um, uh, yeah. Uh, so I did Bride Wars and then, and then, oh yeah. And then I had the opportunity to do Moneyball. But the thing is, is with, with Parks and Rec, I realized like, I remember watching season two or three and looking at myself and I was like, oh dude, you're getting fat. I'm getting fat. And I, and I also also was like my lifestyle at the time. I was like really partying a lot, you know, I was drinking a lot and you know, not exercising at all and just like eating a ton. And, 
in that episode that I saw that I was fat, I was like, this is the funniest I think I've seen myself. Like I kind of <laughs> might, I might lean into this because <laughs> up until that point, remember the only stuff I could do when I was in shape was the douchebag asshole role. Yeah. And I was like, maybe this is my chance to go to that next level and I'll be kind of comedic sidekick guy. You know, I'll, I'll just lean into it. I get to, it fits the lifestyle I wanted to live at the time. I wanted to eat. I wanted to drink. I didn't want to have to exercise, you know, and <laughs> I didn't care. It was like all comedy lacks vanity. So I was like, throw vanity out the window and just see. And so I told my boss, Mike, sure. I was like, I want to see how fat I can get. And he was like, great, cool. And so I put on about 30 pounds and just the fatter I got, the funnier it was. And so I was doing that, but then I auditioned for Moneyball and they were like, um, they liked you, but they think you're too fat. <laughs> and then um, you cut it, right? Oh, then, you like, then you like cut it to get the part, right? I cut it. I just went back to wrestling mode. I was like, all right, good. Uh, uh, and then, you know, I had about six weeks. I had tested with Brad Pitt and Bennett Miller and you know, the part of the reason I was just not, they didn't, they didn't even say you're too fat. Cause you, the, that kind of rejection, it comes as a little bit more subtle. They were like, but the truth is, you know, Brad Pitt was playing Billy Bean and Billy Bean's about six, five, six, four, six, five. And I'm playing Scott Hatterberg, who's five ten. So you put us in the room together, yeah. me at Chris Pratt at 285, 290 pounds next to Brad, yeah. who's in pretty good shape. I just look like Shrek next yeah. to him. You know what I mean? So I started really trimming down and cutting weight. And, um, I would send my agent a new photo like every week and, and check in like, Hey, did they, did they cast it yet? Did they cast it yet? Did they cast it yet? And finally I got in really great shape. I was like down to about 235, yeah. maybe I mean, I'd probably gotten up to about 265 at that point. So I was down to about 235. I cut about 30 pounds, I think. And, um, sent the picture and he was like, Holy shit, dude, is that you? I said, yeah. And so they sent it over and then that's when I had, did it, went and did a screen test, I think, and then got the role. That is awesome. And how crazy it is Scott Hatterberg's at our hotel for the premiere. Right. Like he's how there with his family at the hotel. Yeah. And then he sees me and he's like a fan of the books and all that. And so that was crazy. I mean, all these yeah. things like crazy connect. Um, crazy connection. He's such a good dude. Yeah. So and that nice. really opened every door for me because I did that movie. It was more of a dramatic character. It was like, it wasn't, there was certain levels of comedy and some of it and a little bit of levity that we brought my characters with Stephen Bishop's character who plays um, Dave Justice. We had some scenes that were kind of like created laughter, but there was some pathos to the character. He's this guy who's like washed up and has a, or at the time, you know, it fucked up his elbow. And yeah. so there was a little bit of gravity to the character. And I think that that like is what Catherine Bigelow saw that allowed yeah. her. She told me when we first met, she was like, I saw you in Moneyball and I thought that nice. you'd be right to be a Navy SEAL in Zero Dark Thirty. So, so we had a meeting and um, I got to do that role. Yeah. So I did Moneyball, came home, got fat again to do another season of Parks and Rec, then got cast as a Navy SEAL, had to lose that weight Amazing. and uh, go do Zero Dark Thirty. Man, that is so crazy. Um, man. Uh, I know you're on, you're on the clock, so I want to make sure that I get you oh, out yeah. of here on time. So I want to ask about the terminal list, but there's much, yeah. but, but before we get there, um, so, so you then get guardians and you get Jurassic kind of at the same time. Well, I got guardians of the galaxy after doing, uh, another kind of yo-yo diet thing. Yeah. And they, I got, I was in the final season of parks and rec. I got the offer for guardians of the galaxy, which was, I mean, the thing is, is I saw zero dark 30. 
And it was the first time, like I reevaluated myself and maybe what I was, what I was capable of doing yeah. in Hollywood. I knew I had comedic chops. I knew that I wanted to do comedy. Like Parks and Rec was allowing me to really hone my skills as an improv comedian. Yeah. And I'd been seeing this sort of glut of action comedy coming out around that time, which was primarily like weaklings mm. put into positions of power. That was like happening a lot. Mm. Like if you punch a guy, like you break your wrist or like, right. you know, you try to kick a door down and you hurt your foot, like mm. that kind of a fish out of water action comedy, which, you know, there's plenty of room for that. But I was thinking to myself, like after just watching zero dark 30, no one said, no one, I didn't hear anybody or read any reviews or hear anyone say, well, that Chris Pratt couldn't be a Navy SEAL right. on TV. Obviously I couldn't have been one in real life probably, but on TV or on a movie, it was believable that I could have been a member of this like dev group, you know, SEAL team six or whatever. And so I thought to myself, like, I don't know what's what's out there. Maybe we have to develop something. I want to do action comedy. I want to do, but I want to be proficient in action. I want to be able to literally kick a door down, nice. but also find a way to make it funny. And I said this to my manager and guardians of the galaxy had come several times, maybe like three or four times. And I just passed on even auditioning for it. I was like, I've auditioned for this thing. Trust me. I know I'm not that guy. I'm not the guy I've went and done these like sort of heroic aud roles, you know, auditioned for these heroic roles and no one has cast me and I've never even come close. Yeah. I'm a little too fat. You know, I'm kind of in this sidekick area, but then after I saw Jurassic or after I saw Zero, uh, Dark, 30. Zero Dark 30, I was like, dang, maybe I could be believable as the tough guy. And I was talking to my manager. She goes, what about this Guardians of the Galaxy thing, man? Like, man just go in there and do the thing that you would want to do if you're going to develop a comedy. Yeah. If you're going to develop a character, what would it be? Like, can you make it funny and have them be kind of badass? I was like, so we, so that was really kind of the impetus for that. And then, yeah, so I did Guardians of the Galaxy. And then while I was filming Guardians of the Galaxy, I had my, I had a um, Zoom call with Colin Trevorrow for Jurassic. Wow. And he told me the whole pitch and the whole story. I was like, that sounds great. And uh, then I, but I forgot about it because I was just so, <laughs> in, I was just so immersed in Jurassic and then, or in Guardians. Guardians. And then like a year later, once we had wrapped okay. and, and Guardians hadn't come out. But it hadn't come out yet. That's the part that's so remarkable. No. Like two huge films yeah. like that. And yeah. before, but before one comes out, they're already after you for the other, which is yeah. amazing. I was already committed. I was already committed to Jurassic World before Guardians. So out. great. Man, did, yeah. uh, did you know Guardians was going to be special as you were filming it? Or was it one of those things like this could go either way? Because it's. <laughs> it, it felt it was one of those things where I was. You know, I had learned the, some of the wisdom I gained in the several years, several years I'd been in Hollywood at that point was like, lower your expectations. Yeah. It's always nothing till it's something. Mm. Don't get your hopes up. You'll yeah. just get them crushed. And so I remember we shot for about 11 days on Guardians of the Galaxy in London. And then we got to fly in a private jet from London all the way to San Diego for Comic-Con. It was so dope. It's like, we're on a private jet. This is crazy. <laughs> and um, we debuted some footage from the, from this camera test uh -huh. and from like the 11 days that we had shot together. Okay. And I was looking at it and I was like, Oh my God, this might be very special. This could be really nice. good. And everyone lost their minds. And as we were heading back, we were uncovering goosebumps right now. I was like, Whoa, what did we just see? I think this is, I think this is incredible. And so we went and finished the movie, but I was like, don't, don't get excited. Yeah, yeah. You know, every time you've gotten excited about a part because you had a good audition, you don't get it. It's like, don't do that. You're just going to end up getting hurt, you know? And so uh, then I saw the movie. I was just about to wrap Jurassic World 1. 
And I got to finally see a screening of, of guardians. I went with Jared, me and nice. Jared, Jared was with me on, on uh, Jurassic and, and um, Jared is uh, the seal. Oh yeah. Buddy. We're going to talk our, all about our, him. Our, That's my... Talk about Jared. Oh yeah. He's our producer. He's our producer on uh, one of our producers on the terminalist met him while I was doing zero dark 30 yeah. and became like my best friend. And, you know, was in my wedding this guys, the best. So great. And he's the one who brought, introduced me to you and brought the book, yeah. uh, right. the terminalist to me. Crazy. But uh, Jared and I saw it for the first time and, uh, and we, I walked, I remember watching it in the first scene. I was like, this is really great. Oh my God, this is beautiful. And then you see Star-Lord dancing and I was like, oh my God, I think I blew it. Like, this, <laughs> I'm so scared. I'm so scared. I don't think anyone's going to like this at all. Uh-huh. And then it cuts. And then after this whole dance sequence, I was like, oh, like, get, like give myself diarrhea. I was so nervous. I'm like, oh, my guts hurt. And then I saw Groot and Rocket by the water fountain in this Xandar scene. And I was like, actually, I think this movie might be awesome. Mm-hmm. And then I watched it and even walking out of it, I was like, I think that's good. I think that's good. But still, I think maybe I think it's good because I'm in it or because I'm, because right. I'm close to it. I, I still just wanted to note lower my expectations. Then it came out was like this massive hit. Man, it's so crazy. So crazy. And this thing. So, so I saw, of course, I'm aware of you in Parks and Rec. And then I see Zero Dark 30. And I see that transformation. And of course, this is like 2014 or something. So I'm typing away on the terminal list. I have no connections in Hollywood, none in publishing. And I'm like, this guy will star as James Reese. Like this is, it's just very, it made sense to me to choose the exact person that I wanted to star in what I'm just starting to type out here in the little office off our bedroom in Coronado, California with a couple of years left in the military. And around that, you know, a little bit before that, Jared had uh, let me know that he's getting out of the military and we get to sit down and talk about what he's going to do next and talk about that transition out of the military. And I get to introduce him to some people in the private sector in a, in a field that he was interested in going into. And I followed up with him about it. And then I forgot all about that conversation. I had no idea at the time that you'd come down, that you'd run the O course and checked out training and you guys had connected. And so I had no idea about any of that, which is insanity. Um, but I know that you're the person and I know that Antoine is the right person to direct. Cause I'm just, I'm still a kid. Like in my head, I'm a kid in the eighties, uh, watching all these movies and reading all these books. And now I'm doing it as I'm getting out of the Navy. And I've been thinking about it for so long that of course, this thing that I'm writing is going to get optioned by the exact person I want to star the exact director. And it's going to, you know, it's just made sense. I didn't waste any bandwidth worried about how this couldn't happen. What are the odds of this happening? <laughs> you know, which yeah. now, I mean, I guess, it, you know, it doesn't happen every day, but there's this cool thing that, uh, that I just read right before I walked in here. And, uh, and it speaks to kind of to, to what I saw, even though I didn't know you yet. And it's from somebody named uh, Venus Kanani, um, a cast, casting director uh, for something you did. And it's called Deep in the Valley. Oh, yeah. And oh. Uh, yeah. So um, she says, uh, we see thousands of actors a year. Most of them you forget. He was one you didn't. Um, and then she says, uh, Chris has an intangible quality. You want to watch him, know him and hang out with him. And I saw that same thing. I was like, this is somebody that you want to sit down, you want to have a coffee with, you want to have a beer with. Um, And uh, and as an actor, he's somebody who can flip that switch and go from Parks and Rec to a SEAL operator in Zero Dark Thirty. He's inherently likable on and off screen from what I know. And uh, and I'm like, this is the this is the guy. And uh, and then crazy fast forward before the book even comes out, Jared 
gets in touch with me. And David Bowles is kind of the unhung, uh, unsung hero of all this. He's another friend of ours who uh, kind of let Jared know I had a book coming out. And Jared calls me and I'm on a range somewhere. And, and, uh, and he says, Hey, I heard you have a, he woke up first called to thank me, which was awesome. Um, and remind me what I did for him. And I didn't even think anything wow. of it. Cause you always want to help good people no matter what. And Jared's an amazing guy, obviously. And, uh, and I said, yeah, no problem. Obviously you're welcome. And how's it all going? And, uh, and he said, well, it's going great, but, uh, I heard you have a book coming out. And I said, yeah, I've got a book coming out in a few months, about five months out. I have this galley copy, which is a rough draft I can send you early, you know, early if you want to check it out. And I found out what a galley was like two weeks prior. And, uh, <laughs> and so he's like, yeah, I'd like that, but I'd like to give it to a friend of mine. And I was like, yeah, who's that? And he says, Chris Pratt. And I was like, oh, this is very convenient for me because Chris is the exact person I want to star in this thing. Um, and anyway, sent it to him. He read, he gave it a read first just to make sure it wasn't garbage and then gave it to you. And I have a picture of you reading it for the first time. And I don't even know if you know that I have a picture of you reading it for the first time. Jared might've snuck it. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then you called, uh, you know, the next first week in January of, of 2018, um, before it even hit shelves. Um, yeah so crazy how all this kind of goes together, but what, what spoke? Cause you get, I mean, now I know how many people must send you things. Cause now I get things, not right. just books for blurbs, but people are sending me screenplays and like all sorts of stuff. Cause they just think right. that you have, you know, whatever, but, uh, I can only imagine how many things and how many filters are in place or, or whatever, but, um, but, cause there's have to be just for you to, you know, live. But, uh, what spoke to you about the terminal list after of all the things out there, and you read it at a point where you can do pretty much, I mean, you have options at this point and, right. um, and you read it and you want to do it. What was that thing that made you want to do it? Well, I mean, I think that first of all, I mean, I had really loved the notion and especially at the time, right? Like I'm not sure, you know, you, you kind of always have your, I, for me, I've always had my finger on the pulse of how I'm perceived and you want to kind of keep surprising people. And I felt at least back then that people were going to be very forgiving of me for some reason. Like they liked the things that I was doing. They liked whatever I seemed to stand for in their mind at that time. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure it's exactly like that anymore. <laughs> There's factions of people who dislike me. <laughs> There's but no getting away from it that. Felt like there weren't at the time. Yeah. And I thought to myself, I bet you I could rip somebody's guts out <laughs> on camera and not lose an audience member. And there was like an opportunity because, you know, obviously based on the book, we, what people know of the, of the series now, it, it departs from the book, but there was a whole piece. I think it was Tedesco maybe down in, it was uh, uh, the lawyer. Florida? Uh, yeah, it was the lawyer. Yeah. Uh, it was that was that the lawyer Tedesco? Was that his name Tedesco? No, it was, yeah, Mike Tedesco was the other guy. So we did switch. Uh, the lawyer, I always want to say the name of like the real person I was thinking of. So I oh, yeah, no, don't say it. Don't say it. Okay. <laughs> There's a lawyer and yeah. he, gets, he gets gutted and he walks around this. I just remember that. Like, so I looked at it as an opportunity to really stretch and surprise people and try to, again, you know, prove myself in a way. Like uh, the way that I got to when I did Guardians of the Galaxy and everyone was like, the fat guy from Parks and Rec is going to be a Marvel guy. No, he's not. It's going to be a bomb. It's going to be a fail. No one's going to watch it. Like, I, I, I like the challenge of saying, like, I think you have an idea of who I am, audience members. I'm going to I'm going to flip down its head. I'd like to mm -hmm. I'd like to surprise you. It's an opportunity for me to challenge myself. So I saw that in the character 
And I think that there are a few opportunities for me to have done that in a very few various ways that I could have done that. And really what made this one particularly special, apart from just like how well it was written, uh, the character in itself and how much I loved the book and I loved the world, you know, um, I really, I think my relationship with Jared drove a lot of it into action because you can have a lot of irons in the fire, you know, something comes in, you go, yeah, I get that. Like I might have, I might have, I think I have the rights to a couple of different stories that I would really love to tell, Mm -hmm. but my relationship with Jared and knowing that he and I could do this together and sitting and watching movies with him where he was constantly calling out bullshit. Uh He's like, that's not what it's like. That's dumb. I don't, you know, that it would never happen like that. Yeah. That's some Hollywood bullshit right there. Like I, I was thinking to myself, I, I don't pick up on this stuff. Mm-hmm. I, you know, a lot of what I know, um, everything now it's different, but at the time, everything I knew of combat came from film and television. Right. And just like a lot of writers and a lot of scripts that you read, their knowledge of what happens on the battlefield comes from the things they've seen in film and television or potentially right. read in books. They don't have that on the ground experience. And I knew having Jared as a partner, yeah. we could reach a level of authenticity for, for him for you, for members of this, the spec ops community, he's, he's the perfect filter. Cause if it doesn't work, he'll, he'll, he'll sniff it out. Yeah. So like being able to have that type of authenticity was great. The, the prospect of doing all of the tactical training and the physical training required is a, is a massive challenge. I thought that would be amazing. And I, Jared and I could do it together. Yeah. And so, you know, my relationship with Jared and the closeness there really was probably the extra fuel needed to really get this going. I mean, he, he truly deserves the credit for, for this entire thing being pushed forward. And as we move forward into this world and expand the Jack Carr Cinevision universe, Jared will be a, a a huge part of that. And uh, you know, I love it. I love the idea of being able to continue our partnership and our friendship and our working relationship for the next, you know, you, Jared, me, and all of the, all of the members involved, um, continuing to just make great content for the audience that you aim that book at and that we got to, you know, uh, piggyback onto and find with our series with Amazon. Yeah. So that was, that was the, that was it. I kind of rambled there. Oh man, I love it, Jared. I mean, oh, man, amazing. And uh, he's now he's Boozer for those listening or watching. That's yeah. that's uh, that's Jared. He's Boozer in the show. Also, yeah. tech advisor, producer, uh, on set every day, uh, along with Raymond. Goes shadow writer, Adam. Like, yeah, exactly. Amazing writer, by the way. I mean, his changes and and uh, recommendations and all yes. that was just next level. Very oh, different man. show without Jared involved, without Max, without Ray, like that team there every yeah. day uh, on set, very different show without those guys and without the trust. And you talked earlier about it being like a military operation. And it was when I walked on set for that first time in that first uh, episode and I looked around, I saw, oh, Antoine, that's like the commanding officer right now. Yeah. Okay. And there's Chris. He's a tact. He's setting the tactical level tone, like a troop commander or a platoon commander would. It also happens to be what you're playing in the show. Uh, coincidentally, show, yeah. uh, you know, you bring in uh, all this energy and uh, to, to the to the set, and then I'm like, okay, there's the mobility guy. We have a mobility guy in the SEAL team. We have there's the explosives guy. Hey, we have a breacher. We have an explosives guy. There's the armorer. Guess what we have in a SEAL team? The armorer. And guess what you need to do? You need to feed all these people. There's there's craft food services. I mean, so many things that were the same, and then also so many people came up to me on set and they didn't need 
to do this when I'm sitting in that uh, little video village thing with my set and my, my chair and headphones on. And so many people would come up to me and say, Hey, I've been involved from craft food services to makeup to wardrobe. They'd come up and say, Hey, I've been involved in hundreds of these things in Hollywood and none of them have felt like this. And they made a point to come up and tell me that they didn't need to. And they, they, so many people did that. And that's a testament to you and Antoine at the top, like setting this tone that was encouraging to everybody on set. They wanted to be there. They wanted to be doing their best work. And, uh, you know, I have nothing to compare it to, but all of them did because yeah. they're at the top of their games, meaning that they've done this before. It wasn't anybody's first time out uh, during right. this type of type of a show. And that was really cool. And that just speaks to, to you um, uh, and Antoine and your guys' character and what you bring to these projects. And it's just wow. next level. And it did not go unnoticed by every single person on set. Oh, that means a lot. Thank you. That's that, that is, that does mean a lot. And I, I hear all these stories. I haven't, I, I kind of, ha I guess I've had a couple of, instances that I can understand where people are coming from, but boy, can a project be ruined by failed leadership yeah. from the most influential people from the number one on the call sheet. I mean, yeah. if they have a bad attitude, everyone has a bad attitude. It really starts right there at the top yeah. and not to say that I'm right there at the top, but in this project, it, anyone who's at that level, who's number one on the call sheet, they have a real responsibility. And oftentimes they don't, you know, I saw it when I was younger, I saw, I've worked with people who were just, just assholes, man. Like at the top, they had all the power yeah. and they forced people to respect them by being a bit tyrants. Yeah. And I would see in the moment them getting exactly what they wanted and being, and being pretty good, yeah. being pretty good at their job. Yeah. And that was, that was early on in my career. And I remember distinctly thinking like, Oh no, this actually might not be cut out for me. Cause I don't really have that. Yeah. I, I just don't have that, uh, on that gene. I don't really have that in me. You know, yeah. I think it's a thing like to be completely indifferent to whether or not you've just pissed off a room full of people. Right. Just you can get your way. Like I don't yeah. I don't have that in me. I'm too much of like a a pleaser, I think, you know, like yeah, so it's just respect and I, you know it's, it's yeah, but, but nonetheless, at the time I was a little nervous. I was like, oh great, that's what I <laughs> that's what you have to do to get to the top. I really want to go to the top. I, I but I, I honestly don't know how to do that. So but then and then in subsequently I've seen uh, that has a very, sh that gives you a, a short shelf life because the people that you, that you are pissing off, like you're making life difficult for people around yeah. you. Guess what? They're going to continue to have a career and it'll one at some point it'll be up to them whether or not they're going to hire you yeah. and they will say no. They'll be like, Nope. I, yeah. I've been through that. Yeah. Uh, you know, fool me once. Nope. Right. I, I've dealt with that asshole. Not right. going to have him on set anymore because right. you know, the, the person who was the PA or the person who was a, the second, second AD. Now they're running a show. They're a UPM. They're a first AD. They're running these shows. So like the people you see on the way up, they're going to see you on your way down. And, yeah. and, you know, it, it benefits not that that's like my motivating factor is like, you know, some cunning way I'm pl planning in the future for people to take care of me by being nice to them. It's just kind of inherently who yeah. I want to be. Yeah. And it uh, seems like it'd be miserable to go through life the other way. And you get to choose that attitude. Like yeah, you get to pick really when you wake up every morning. Uh, somebody tell the kids, I say, never miss an opportunity to make somebody's day. And I saw yeah, you do that right. every single day on set. I saw you do that. And oh, uh, so you live it. You might've never thought of it, but you do that every day. You do that as a person. Like that's who you are and you do it every single day. Um, that's nice. Thanks brother.
Well, yeah, and you did it. We did it with the show too. I mean, to have Amazon come to the plate, also with these veteran organizations, with uh, the Brain Treatment Foundation, um, with Rescue Twenty Two Foundation. We had Best Defense Foundation. These World War II veterans there in their wheelchairs at the premiere. Awesome. I mean, incredible. Donnie Edwards' foundation there, and I mean to have those guys there. I mean, they're all creeping up on a hundred, or they're already over a hundred. Years wow, old. you're right. That's where we are in time. I mean, mm-hmm. the greatest generation, if they if they served in World War II, they might be over 100 now, and they may have been 16 or 17 when they served. I mean, yeah. that's how much time has gone by. Yeah. Like, that generation is in their final hours. It's like, wow. Yeah. It's just wild to think. I mean, what that's is it? What, are they, what is that thing that goes around? Hard times make strong men, strong men make easy times, easy times make soft men, soft men make hard times. Oh yeah. Like those are some strong men that made some good times. Yeah. So I think about those guys. I think about them when I was in buds. I think about them if there's any, when I'm facing whatever kind of adversity or whatever else, how much they sacrificed and how much harder it was for them to give me these options and opportunities that I have, that we have today in this country. So I think about that quite a bit when I'm making decisions that are going to impact the next generation. So it's, uh, it's, it's tough, but those guys and the youngest ones all lied. The guys that are like 95, like they lied about their age to get in They forged birth certificates, whatever they needed to do to go fight for their country. Uh, Imagine someone right now who wasn't old enough to fight forging a birth certificate so they could go and fight. I mean, different times. Yeah. I miss that. I like, we don't like the lot, the closest I've ever seen to that type of unity was probably just in America just after 9-11 yeah. when everyone was waving, waving flags and you know yeah. you hate for hard times to unify people yeah. but you know we feel very I feel the world in the west seems in, in America seems really divided right now yeah I know it's tough um, I wonder if that's the result of it having been Soft, exactly soft times that's why i like to jump into those pages of the history books because it can remind us of uh how hard it was and what was sacrificed for us and maybe we'd be a little more appreciative of some yeah. of those things and a, little, and a little kinder also to, to other people out there um our fellow citizens um but i know you got to go and uh, no, that's all right speaking yeah. of books see this one right here oh, oh i one? sure do once an eagle anton meyer right there yep you got me this book hard copy after i finished it and you I, and i read the letter he wrote me a letter in the end of it, I would recommend anybody who loves to read, you know, follow uh, Jack's book club recommendation. This this is one of the books that he recommended I read to play uh, yes, SEAL Commander yes, yes. James Reese. And I read that also this one here is called Fiasco. Oh, yeah. Thomas Ricks. That's yeah. a pretty awesome book. Yeah. A history book on sort of our involvement just to kind of get an understanding mm-hmm. of what maybe Reese would have gone through. I also read uh, Stephen Pressfield's um, uh, the, the, uh, the Warrior Ethos, which is a quick read and really fantastic. It is. Really spectacular. Um, what else did I? I think those are the three books yeah. I read. Once an Eagle, I, I mean, by the time we started, I was still reading it because that's a big book. It's a commitment. <laughs> it's a commitment. <laughs> you can use it as a doorstop for anybody that buys it. Like it does, it will have another right. use after you finish reading it because that's a, that's a long book right there. But it is a fantastic book. Sam Damon. I mean, wow. Mm-hmm. There's this really special, uh, and his relationship with his father-in-law who talks about, uh, you know, the world being obsessed with treating human beings as how they ought to be and not how they are. That whole, that whole passage is really powerful. There's so many good ones in there that are really impactful to me as a leader. Um, and really the, the, the message of that whole book of you encapsulated, I think Mm -hmm. is to see to your character and your reputation will take care of itself. 
Because those mm -hmm. are two different things, character and reputation. But if you see your character, your reputation will take care of itself. So uh, wow. there's that. And then I love when Sam Damon's talking to his son and says, um, you can't help uh, what you were born and you can't, don't have much to say about where you die, but you can and you should live the days in between as a good man. Yeah. And I just love that, that passage. That's beautiful, man. Exactly. That is so good. Exactly. I highly recommend that that book for people. Isn't that like a mandatory reading at West Point? Is it's that been, right? Uh, it's been on their reading list. I'm not sure. If, I hope it's mandatory still. Yeah. Um, but who knows today uh, what's mandatory over there? Um, but it should be anyway, because it's a it's an impactful one, and, and 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 not just for people in the military, but just it's a one. It's a great story. You learn a little bit about history too, because it spans from pre World War One all the way up to Vietnam. So you learn a little bit about yeah. history in there. So it's historical yeah. fiction as well. Yeah, it is historical fiction in that way. That's really kind of amazing. Uh, and and from told from the point of view of a person who's enlisted, you know, like a Mustang kind of commander who's yeah. who's works his way up into command and has a respect, but also like a disdain for the person who <laughs> gets appointed that position and, and looks at only themselves, the mass and Gale effect, uh, the character who's just like, you know, I wanted to call, I wanted to call pillar. And I think I did it in one of the takes, but didn't make the moot show. I wanted to call him a mass and Gale motherfucker. Oh, I like that. I didn't know though that you put that in there. Cause in the yeah. book, I put that in there. I put, I say a mass and Gale ass. It's in there when I describe him in the novel. So I put that in oh, there right. for people oh, that are, uh, yeah, the people that have read once an Eagle, they can, they'll pick up on it. Uh, so that's actually in there as I describe him in the, is that in the right? book. Yeah. And that, maybe that's incredible. I love that. Yeah. yeah, he is. He is total, total mass and Gale. Yeah. Yeah. No, big time, big time, man. And and then before we go also, I know you're very involved special Olympics and, um, yeah. I mean, you've done so much with that organization, a bunch of other organizations out there that, uh, that hunger organization where, that you did the, uh, the, yeah. the, uh, the, the, the feeding, America, Live, feeding America, that was amazing. You guys raised a ton, uh, for yeah. that. Um, but, uh, as you know, our son has these severe special needs and he needs 24 seven full-time care forever. So every time I see you doing something with special Olympics out there, I mean, I know it makes such an impact for people that follow you that are dealing with those sorts of things. So I wanted to thank you personally for, for doing all oh, that as well. Thank you. Thanks, man. Special Olympics is an extraordinary organization. And I, I really feel like it feels like a platitude hearing this from people, but once you experience it, you know, that it's actually true. The work that you do with them benefits you far more than it benefits them. Like you look at people who coach, or who spend time in Special Olympics. And it is so absolutely rewarding. I mean, there's really nothing like it. And, and uh, you, you know, they, it just, it, what an awesome organization. And, um, and I have always, I've always been really kind of drawn to Special Olympics. My neighbor growing up, Rory Parrish was a Special Olympian and he wore like 40 medals around his neck at all time. He was like the iced tea of Special Olympics. He just, like he had his whole, his whole, all his medals. And the dude was a really good athlete. Awesome. He was, had intellectual disabilities and, you know, but he, he, he had a place to shine and it yeah. was his identity and it was his life. And you see these folks in the special Olympics. It's just, it's awesome, man. You, you do a little work with them and it just, it, it shifts your perspective. It feeds your soul. It's an awesome organization, not only because of what it does for people with intellectual disabilities, but also what it does for people who, who volunteer their time. I mean, yeah. they kind of, need it yeah. just yeah. as much as the people with intellectual disabilities. It's an amazing call to be of service. And if anyone's ever wondering where to spend their time or focus their energy or feeling down and 
refreshing Instagram isn't doing it for you, find a special Olympics and see what you can do to be of service. Cause it, that will truly fill your soul, man. I'm telling you it's the okay. best. Incredible. And Shriver families and, and Kennedy families, obviously huge uh, right. behind that and a bunch of other other uh, things that benefit people with uh, with disabilities. But uh, incredible, incredible. And I don't know if you saw this as we were talking there, but Black Rifle made you this a while ago. I don't know if you can see that right there. So this Burt Macklin, I think, but it's a little Jurassic <laughs> thrown in there and then some Legos falling from the sky and they got the, uh, I think the bla the blaster from uh, from Guardians, I think is in there. So yeah, they made okay. me this special cup when uh, they found out that we were doing uh, Terminalist. So uh, wait, come yeah. on, tell them to send me, but come on guys. <laughs> they might've told me to give this to you. I'm not, I'm not positive, but I'll get you one. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wait, wait a minute. They sent that to, to you, huh? <laughs> yeah. So they did that. No, and how cool was Amazon to partner with these guys to do awesome. uh, for the show, raise money for these veterans organizations? Yeah, incredible. Man. Absolutely. Well, that was incredible. that was the big thing that I really loved about the book. And then hopefully we thread as much as that as possible into the series was like sort of giving shout outs to these authentic these companies that are authentically yeah. supported in in the in the community of spec ops guys and black rifle coffee companies, definitely one of them. That was all we had them all over. Same with this shirt. There you I go. Shirt I see it. Yeah, I saw the grunt style on there. They, they sent me this a, a, a box of shirts because we had a bunch of their stuff in the show. And nice. Like, hey, it's so cool, you know? Nice. And like, yeah, everything from like, uh, you know, um, not, uh, knock on, yeah. uh, you know, putting that, putting that so many PSD people. bow in there from knock on and yeah. John Dudley's company and just like pretty cool, man. Yeah, that no, was really cool. And I'm going to let you go. I know you got to get going. Um, yep. Terminal list right here. Look at you. Look at that guy. You know, and it, it was, you know, they don't usually do the hardcovers for this, but they did one for this because uh, Simon & Schuster recognized that something's a little little different about the, this project. So a hardcover, of course, there's the paperbacks and everything else. Uh, but then it was shocking that it wasn't selling. So, you know, we had to go and put a different cover on there. So, but, <laughs> <laughs> Taylor, there shout go. out to Taylor. Ben Edwards. Ben Edwards right there. Yeah, an Amazon original starring Taylor Kitsch on Prime Video. So uh, I think we'll have to like, there's not many of these. So I think we're gonna have to like sign them and, and raffle them off for, uh, for one Amazing. of these organizations yeah, that's like, or, that's like the, or something like that. Yeah, that's that's far more valuable. <laughs> Man, but thank you so much for everything uh, for, for personally and professionally. Um, sincerely appreciated from the bottom of my heart. And uh, we did kind of hint at it a little early because everybody's asking about a season two and we hinted about it about 15 minutes ago in this. So uh, I think it's best that just to say that, uh, you know, we'll see. And there's some maybe maybe some cool stuff on the horizon being discussed. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I would say, yeah, I would say uh, to the people, the rabid fans of the Terminalist out there, you have nothing to worry about. We love you and we appreciate your support and is our life's mission to make sure you have, you have, uh, you can come back to the well. And so we're, we're, we're working away. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks brother. Thanks brother. Let you go get the rest of your day, get after right, it. And, uh, thank you for everything. All right. Thank you too, man. We'll talk to you later. Take care. Have you tried Kansas city cattle company? If not, why not? Get after it. Here we go. Kansas City Cattle Company. That's kccattlecompany.com. Check them out. Veteran owned and operated. Look at this right here. They have Wagyu beef flat iron steak. This is delicious. One of my favorites. All sorts of steaks. Don't have the fillets out here because I ate them all. Same thing with the tomahawks, which are incredible. And what else do we have? Wagyu beef bavette. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but the bavette, B-A-V-E-T-T-E steak. Highly recommended. Absolutely love this cut right here. If you haven't heard of this cut, go to that website, 
kccattlecompany.com. Check it out. And what is this one here? This is the Wagyu Beef Kansas City Strip Steak, also a favorite. And then the kids love burgers made with this stuff. So this is the Wagyu Beef right here. Amazing burgers with this. Uh, all sorts of stuff on that side. Here we go. Beef chorizo right here. But uh, go check them out for sure. Veteran owned and operated again. And that is kccattlecompany.com slash Jack Carr and use code Jack Carr 15. That's J-A-C-K-C-A-R-R. 15. Check them out for sure. Better known and operated. Love these guys. Awesome stuff. In fact, I am going to go fire up the smoker right now and throw something on. Thanks guys. Thank you for tuning in to the Terminal List Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by KC Cattle Company. To find out more about what Chris Pratt has going on, follow him on the social channels at Pratt Pratt Pratt. You can follow me at Jack Carr USA. You can go to officialjackcar.com. That is the website. You can sign up for the newsletter there and you can click on shop for the merchandise. And if you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review and subscribe. Until the next time, take care out there. Be safe, stay strong, keep fighting.